Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this netcast is Mark Bomford, who in October of 2011 joined Yale University as the director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project. He's had more than 15 years of experience creating sustainable food systems in Canada and internationally. His career in the sustainable food movement began in 1997 when he founded the successful Growing Schools Initiative in Victoria, British Columbia, establishing school gardens throughout the city and developing garden-based curricula. In 2001, he moved to the University of British Columbia, where he worked to reinvent the UBC farm. He founded the Center for Sustainable Agriculture there in 2005, and as I said, has done a number of things related to food and food sustainability issues. Mark, it's really nice of you to join us. Thanks for coming today. Kelly, it's great to be here. So let's talk about the concept of sustainability. You hear the word a lot, and probably most everybody is connected to it somehow psychologically, but tell us what it means in the context of food. Yeah, that's very interesting because sustainability is sort of living like we plan to be around for the long term. You hear many of the definitions that talk about it uh, not compromising the needs of future generations to satisfy the needs of the present and this, that, and the other thing. But embedded within sustainability are so many questions about what resources we depend on on a day-to-day basis, where they come from, what the impacts are. And by and large, because we do live in such a globalized system, these impacts are invisible. In terms of the food system, we've got an opportunity to make these invisible impacts very visible once again. And that's one of the uh, great pieces about working within food is you do have that day-to-day, regular, important, essential reminder that people pay attention to about how what they do on a day-to-day basis impacts their region, the people around them, and the world. So it's my understanding that the world now produces enough food to feed people. So why worry about this? Yeah, we produce more food than we ever have at any time in history. The um, successes of the productionist paradigm, as some people call it, which was very much a focus on saying, how can we get more food plants out of a smaller area to feed a growing population? Those successes have been amazing. They've been remarkable in terms of we are now producing more food than we've ever produced before. The caveat to the whole thing is that that food is not necessarily getting to the right people at the right time. One of the more critical indictments of the food system right now is the one which talks about uh, stuffed and starved, I think was the title of Raj Patel's book, which brought to light that in this system of abundant production, we have 1 billion people who are still severely malnourished, living on less than 1,700 calories a day. And then we also have 1 billion people who are overnourished. And in both cases, it's malnourishment, one through excess, essentially, and one through deficiency. So it really clearly speaks to the fact that production alone is not enough for a sustainable food system. We've excelled in production, but that doesn't mean we've excelled in sustainability. Just because the food is there doesn't mean the people are fed and fed properly. So what are the concerns about unsustainable practices? Are we going to run out of land, water, 
nutrients are we poisoning the soil? I know there are a lot of things going on, but what are the chief concerns in this context? Yeah, there's lots of questions about how long we can keep producing at the level that we have been producing. And scientists and the public are rightly concerned about where this is going to lead in the future. One of the reasons for that is that the incredible yield gains that have been made, especially over the last 50 years, Half of that picture says we're growing more on less land and that the trend looks good. The growing population will be served because this trend of more production on less land will continue and everything will be okay. The second half of that story, which is often not acknowledged, is that the reason we're growing more on less land is because rather than using more land, we're using more of other kinds of inputs. And that's where the use of synthetic fertilizers, the use of crop protection products, including all of your different pesticides, comes in. And it's a a lot of energy is tied up in the production of those products. And at one point uh, down the line, you have to ask how long that energy is going to hold out and also what are the land impacts of keeping that energy flowing. Often it's less a sheer gain in productivity and more hiding the impact somewhere where it's out of sight and out of mind. Don't tell me what you mean by that. Well, for example, if you look at... uh, an example of high input, high output agriculture, something that would be considered a triumph of productivity, like you might find in a hydroponic greenhouse, for example. You'll hear how in a hydroponic greenhouse you might be able to yield uh, 40 times what you could yield in a field. And the superficial argument is that inside this greenhouse, we are producing on one acre what allows us to set aside 39 acres that would otherwise be taken up in agricultural cultivation, and this is now turned over into wildlands or protection of biodiversity or these kind of things. And that is the um, initial uh, argument about it. But behind that greenhouse, of course, are a whole chain of inputs required not just to construct it, but also to keep it going. And, you know, the big ones, for example, in this case, would actually be the natural gas to keep that greenhouse at a temperature uh, in a temperate climate, which you don't find in the middle of the winter. That takes a whole pile of energy. That energy actually has to come from somewhere. And it's not just the natural gas fields that are producing that to bring it into the greenhouse. It's also the land that we need to consider, which is going to balance the carbon which is being emitted out of that system, burning the fossil fuels. So it's not just a question of constraints, how much longer is the natural gas going to keep flowing? And there are some uh, rather dire predictions about how long that will actually keep flowing. There's also the question about how we keep the system in balance, because right now, of course, the imbalance in the flux of carbon that we've got is one of the contributors to global climate change, which of course has that feedback into how viably we can produce agriculture the way that it's been done in the past. So you've got those twin challenges of the future of energy supply, uh, how available and how much it's going to cost, and of course, the stability of the climate. Those come together into a pretty powerful package that demands that we look at food in a way that is not uh, dependent upon the constant cheap energy that it enjoys today, as well as we look at a way that food can be produced in a way that doesn't depend on the very uh, stable climate that we've enjoyed for the whole duration of agriculture's emergence. So 
a large challenge to be sure, but the answer can often be found in doing full cost accounting, asking not just what it takes to, how much land it takes to produce a given amount of food, but how much land it takes to sustain that given amount of food, and what kind of production system will be able to respond to a lot more variability in the climate in the future. I think you're leading beautifully to this concept of externalities that I've heard you talk about, that food is You've made the point that food is very inexpensive in the United States at this particular point in history, but there are reasons for that 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 deal with this concept of externalities. Would you mind explaining the concept and how it applies in this area? Yeah, the general point is that as individuals, we are statistically paying less than any person has at any time in history for food today in the United States. But that is, the bill is being picked up basically by society because what the individual pays is not the full cost of the food that they are purchasing. The production of food, because of the amount of inputs required to make it all happen, and because of the downstream environmental impacts of producing all of those inputs, means that society does have to bear a cost. And that cost is borne out, uh, not just in the big things that I've talked about, uh, energy security and climate change, but also on a very tangible basis with the uh, pollution of our waterways, uh, particularly due to eutrophication from the runoff of some of these uh, high energy, um, high embodied energy fertilizers that we already discussed. Um, It also pays the cost in terms of reduced biodiversity. The presence of biodiversity, both in agricultural systems as well as non-agricultural systems, is one of the key tools that we actually have when it comes to thinking about having systems that will be resilient in the face of changing climate. And right now, we are uh, paying that cost as we're diminishing uh, diversity everywhere from the genetic level, the species level, to the community level. So we do have to pay the bill for those eventually. It's society that pays the bills, not individuals who pay the bills on their food costs. And one of the key challenges is then how do we make sure that the true cost of food is actually accounted in the price of food? Now, Kelly, you're dealing with some of the health impacts that society is paying for big time right now when it comes to the health care costs that are related to um, diseases that uh, food plays a big role in, and particularly malnourishment plays a big role in. And so that's a, a very uh, obvious, visible, and mounting cost that's not captured in the price of food right now. So you can generalize and say that basically very cheap food comes at a very high cost. So how do we actually make the price of food reflect that full cost in the future? And that's a wonderful economic challenge that we need to take on. Well, so is the part of the idea that if these full costs were reflected in what people paid for their food, that they it would help them make different decisions about what they buy and eat? That's the hope, is that it would um, make you uh, purchase the food that was actually good value rather than the food which was cheap that came at a huge cost. Now, the idea of higher food costs for the uh, greater good is not a... Uh, it is not a future vision that I think many people are fond of hearing. But if you consider it more a shifting, saying that if we pay more for food so that it accurately reflects the cost of that food downstream, we end up as a society paying less for the things that are kind of these uh, lurking costs, the health care costs, the environmental cleanup costs, the costs that are associated with no longer having the guaranteed production certainty that we enjoy in a stable climate. All of these things uh, sort themselves out so that the feeling is that you can actually achieve a more optimal result with a greater cost for food, you end up saving money in the end, not just as a society, but as an individual. 
Right, because you're making the point, I believe, that you're that the individual is paying one way or another. That they go buy a hamburger, and the hamburger might be cheaper than it would be otherwise if all these other costs weren't included. But they will pay for it in higher health care costs, higher taxes, because the government has to pay for the diabetes that comes down the road, um, and environmental cleanup costs and things like that. That's right. And I think that it does become appealing if you can make the case that, uh, look, if you as an individual uh, pay the correct cost right now, uh, you're not going to see it borne out in increased taxation down the line. I think that can be a fairly empowering message, especially if you're resistant to the idea of saying, like, why, why do I want increased taxation for uh, basically curing something which was uh, vaguely defined and largely invisible to begin with. We're trying to make that invisible visible. And if that was reflected in the cost of food, I think that would be something that could be quite attractive to the consumer if they understood, hey, this is saving me taxes down the line. This is saving me health care costs down the line. This is putting more money in my pocket at the end of the day, and I'm eating better, and I'm healthier for it. You could easily see how this would um, shape costs of different kinds of foods differently. So, for example, a, you know, a box of tomatoes from a local farmer might go down in price from what it is now, and a bag of processed snack chips might go up if these costs are adequately reflected. And that could lead to some down some very good roads nutritionally, not to mention environmentally. Absolutely. There's a nice connection here because many of the foods that you might consider to be the most sustainable from a biophysical environmental standpoint. The ones that have the least damage on the environment require less energy in their production and use fewer uh, valuable materials and resources. Often, those are the foods that are also the healthiest. And so it's a wonderful kind of win-win where what you're doing, which is good for the environment, also happens to be good for you. And uh, those could be the foods where you would see a, uh, a decrease, certainly in the relative cost, over the ones which today tend to have the greater environmental impacts, but also have the greater health impacts. So it could be a, uh, a very valuable path to pursue, sort of where everyone ends up winning. You know, I've heard people say that if the world had to make just one dietary change that would most improve both health and the environment, it would be to eat less meat. Does that make sense to you? That makes absolute sense. And there's a couple of ways that you can look about this. Certainly, meat has the highest environmental impact kind of per food unit, if you want to say a, a calorie from meat protein, um, I suppose, has a, has a much higher environmental impact than one from plant protein. Yeah. Uh, the reason for that has uh, mostly to do with um, uh, conversion efficiencies as they work their way through a food chain or a food web. Quite simply, it requires a lot of resources to get calories from meat relative to the amount of resources that it takes to get calories from a plant. And all of those resources have downstream costs. And of course, the concern about the greenhouse gases is one which is very present today. And meat tends to be um, meat tends to be the worst when it comes to the emission of greenhouse gases, especially some of the ones such as uh, methane that are less well understood, uh, their role, for example, in global average surface warming, their role is less well understood than CO2. They tend to stick around for longer, have a higher per unit impact in the atmosphere. And so that's a, you know, that's a very valid concern about the downstream impacts. The meat production industry, when we talked about uh, eutrophication, for example, and pollution of waterways, again, you get more pollution of waterways per unit of meat, pound of meat, than you do for a pound of plant food. So that shift is one which is uh, easy and obvious and 
unlike others where it's sort of like, well, if we look at it from this angle, it appears good. And we look at it from this angle, it appears detrimental. Across the board, a reduction in the proportion of calories coming from meat, I think, is universally accepted as something that would be good, both from the health perspective as well as the environmental perspective. But there's ways here that can uh, benefit, I think, the consumer, even if they like meat a lot. I enjoy meat as part of my diet to a great degree. And I sort of think about, well, I like meat, so I don't want to uh, spoil that enjoyment by relying on a whole bunch of cheap meat. I want to go for stuff which is actually really tasty and uh, cherish that, I suppose. Uh, Life may be too short for me to eat a whole pile of cheap meat when I enjoy it enough that I actually want to have a good meal out of it. So what happens is it uh, I'm, I'm elevating the quality of that. I'm getting more enjoyment over it, uh, out of it while I'm lowering the quantity, which is actually going into my diet. And I think it's kind of a good trade-off. And it's also, I think, important to recognize that uh, animals play a very important role in sustainable agricultural production. Not all of the agricultural land in the world is really suitable for cultivating crops, for cultivating uh, plant-based crops. And we could do better actually by using um, that wonderful uh, kind of quality that these grazing animals have, which is that they can take this non-human edible grass and turn it into this wonderfully flavorful protein-packed package. Um, And that's something that can play a really important role in the restoration of some of our agricultural lands that have been degraded, and can also play an important role kind of in the uh, timing and diversity diversity of agricultural economies around the world. Most regions would be better off to have a mix of grazing lands and cultivated crop production lands than to move the whole thing over to cultivation, which can actually take quite a toll. So there's a role for meat in the food production system. I feel there's a role for meat uh, culturally, nutritionally, for the sheer enjoyment of it in the uh, consumption piece of it. But we're approaching it all wrong today. And it could be approached in in a wonderful way where I think, again, we end up winning. We get better meat at the end of the day. We get to enjoy it more. And Honestly, it becomes a treat, which I think is something that it should be. I think that we can um, uh, have a better time with meat if it's sort of like, well, this is something special rather than this is the basis of our diet. If we consider it the basis of our diet, then we're, we're in for trouble. I'd like to end with a trend question. <clears throat> the, it's clear that there's more interest in these sustainability issues. And no matter who you are or what point of view you take, if you care about climate change, about the world running out of food for the growing population – about the nutritional consequences of food. If you're a big company or, or an ag- organic farmer, everybody would have to agree that the stakes are very high here and that, that there's a lot resting on our ability to get this right. And it seems like part of the solution to that is the public caring about it. And if the public will care about it, the legislators will care about it, then that will get thoughtful discussions going and you might end up with some solutions. Do you see positive trends in that regard, people caring about this issue? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the trends when you talk about people, um, increasingly those people are people who live in cities. And already more than half of the world's population is living in cities. The next two billion that we add to the planet will be living in cities too. And that's a very important part. When you're asking about public engagement and the public caring, 
it's really important to recognize that this is an urban public and it's very, very easy for that urban public to be so disconnected from their food supply because out of necessity to have a bunch of people living in a small area like a city, you need to have a robust network of farms through uh, the region and through the world, honestly, to support those cities. They can be out of sight, out of mind because they will be in distant locations. So one of the most encouraging trends that I've seen recently has been the emergence of, some have called it an urban food renaissance, where you have this growth in urban agricultural activities, um, farming at small scale on vacant lots, on rooftops, on community gardens, in schools, Um, the growth in direct marketing in urban centers where you have farmers markets blossoming on every street corner, where you have people who are enrolling uh, directly to get a box of produce every week from their local farmer in a a community-supported agriculture or CSA scheme, where you've got restaurants who are building their entire identity on where their food comes from, where they're actually tracing it back to the source, and they're using that for their marketing um, to engage with their public. All of these are points of public engagement that we didn't have in cities 10 years ago. And for me, that's one of the more hopeful ways that we can take this group of people living in cities who quite honestly have got the clout today. They've got the economic power. They've got the political power. Knowingly or unknowingly, they will be shaping food policy and they'll be shaping land policy. We have this opportunity with this emergence of urban agriculture and this urban food renaissance to engage people so they understand where their food's coming from. And it's important to note that we need these urban activities to link very directly to the rural land base, which ultimately supports the ability to live in the density that a city has. And so it doesn't end with the community garden. Rather, the community garden opens the door to understand what's going on there in the farms around the world so that the city can actually play an active role in stewarding and taking care of their food supply and their farms. So that is the trend which is both the greatest challenge because urbanization threatens to disconnect people further from their food supply, but it's also the greatest opportunity right now because in an urban environment, you can concentrate that power of basically economic-based decision-making, political decision-making, and if we've got a tool like urban agriculture and these urban food initiatives to actually engage the public in a meaningful way, then I think we've got an, an opportunity to actually make this happen. It's very nice to end on such an optimistic note about where things might might be going because it is so important. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Kelly. Our guest was Mark Bomford, who is the director of the Yale Sustainable Food Project and a widely respected source on issues of sustainable food systems. I'd like to welcome our listeners to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org, and there you'll find resources around a variety of issues on food policy an email newsletter that gets dispatched free um, every month, and, of course, links to the other podcasts that we've recorded with excellent guests. Thank you.